I will be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. you weren't at least tapping your foot during that offertory. Check yourself. It's good stuff. Yeah, this really emerged out of uh, a lunch that Keith and I had a number of weeks ago when just things seemed to be getting crazier in the world. We were coming off of the terrible Charleston shooting, and more recently you have these ISIS-related events. Just uh, this morning I was reading about another terrible bombing in Baghdad that they took credit for, and it's killed at least 126 people. The other day in Istanbul, you had the terrible trilogy of tragedies that Keith mentioned uh, down in Orlando recently. You've got the presidential election and how divisive that all seems to be. You've got uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, shooting missiles around and just all kinds of crazy stuff. And I remember having lunch with Keith that day. We were just kind of going down that litany of of things going on, and I just remember him stopping and just saying, man, sometimes I just need to remember that my citizenship is in heaven. And I needed to hear that. That ministered to me that morning, and I thought, you know, I need to address that uh, passage from Philippians 3. But what's interesting is as you study that passage, there's really no escapism to it. In fact, it's really couched around other verses that are making the point that you Escape later, but for now you engage, or flipping that, engage now, escape later. And Keith spoke to that very well. Yeah, our citizenship is in heaven, we look forward to that, but we got a lot to do in the meantime, and Paul makes that very clear in this passage. Uh, you got to engage the world as a citizen of heaven. Yes, we're heading there one day, but for now, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, we are to bring some of heaven And the justice that comes with that, the goodness, the peace, the joy that comes with that, we bring that to this world now. And what is our strategy? Well, that's what Paul talks about in this passage. And you know what he says? You need mentors. That's what he says. You need mentors who guide you through this life of evil and darkness and brokenness. Let's look at the first verse there, verse 17. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Some of your translations say, be imitators of me, and learn from those who follow our example. It says, be imitators of me. Literally, the Greek word there is where we get the word mimic. Mimic me is what Paul is saying. Now, now it says here, pattern your lives after me. Is that said out of arrogance? No, not at all. Paul is really talking like a craftsman who knows a particular craft, and he has an apprentice who doesn't know how to make this thing at all, so he's got to watch that master craftsman working at that thing. Or it could be a scoutmaster who's saying, you know, follow me, do what I do, because he's the only one who really knows how to find his way through the long journey through this windy wilderness. So it's not arrogance at all. It's, it's, it's vital. It's just 
vital. He's saying, follow me. And there are other passages where Paul says, imitate me, imitate us, talking about the apostles and early believers. Think about it. In the earliest church, the only template that they had in terms of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus was the apostles, including the apostle Paul. So he had to say, here is how you do it. Here is how discipleship and taking a stand for Jesus happens. Look at these other passages where he talks about it. First of all, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 11, 1 and 2. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. He's basically saying in context here, mimic me by following my teachings that I have found from Christ himself as an apostle. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 where he's really talking about imitate me by being open to the Spirit in spite of the suffering you face. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And we're going to go back to that passage, by the way, because I think it's very important. Finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7. This is where the Thessalonian church had become lazy because they thought that Jesus either had already shown up or they thought he was going to show up soon, so a lot of them just quit their jobs. They became idle. And Paul says, no, you need to imitate us. We always worked among you. We were never lazy. And you need to follow our example. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. He's saying, be like us and work for your own bread. And again, the earliest template to follow was people like Paul. So no doubt he had to say, follow me, watch me, watch our example. He was passionate in helping people follow the right way. And that's so critical as we try to reach unbelievers because we need not only Christians to watch us, we need unbelievers to keep an eye on us and us be the witnesses that we need to be. D.A. Carson, who's a great New Testament scholar, when he was in college, he led a Bible study, was in a Bible study discipleship group. And whenever he found a skeptic or a doubter who was very bright and, and, and D.A. Carson fell out of his league, he would bring him to this guy named Dave, who was a believer, who had a really bright mind, but was also passionate about the faith. And there was one guy he brought to him, this this big-time skeptic, and he said, hey, Dave, I'm so-and-so, and DA said I should talk to you, and he said, look, you know, my family and I, we go to church when we can. Uh, we don't buy into that literal resurrection of Jesus stuff. That's a little bit much for me intellectually, and so, you know, but we're nice, and we contribute to our community, and we're a nice, stable family, and so, Dave, and he asked Dave, so what have you got that we don't have? What have you got that we don't have? And Dave immediately said, watch me. He said, in fact, you know what? And he said the guy's name. He said, I have an extra bed in my apartment. It's a really nice apartment, and and I want you to come stay with me. I want you to come stay with me for three months, and you watch how I live, watch what I value, watch how I talk, watch what I behave. Just watch how I carry myself, and after three months, you tell me that there's no difference. He said, I'm serious. Come on, move in with me. Well, the guy didn't take him up on his offer, but what's interesting is that really pricked this guy's conscience, and he felt challenged to watch Dave. And over the course of that semester, he did just that. He watched him. And by the end of that semester, late in the spring, he himself not only gave his life to Christ, but to this day, he is a medical missionary overseas. Dave was, in a sense, a mentor to this unbeliever. 
so vital that we find mentors who can help guide us along in this dark world with so many evils about it. But we not only need to do that for unbelievers, we need to do that to help each other live as believers in Christ. And Paul says that in the second part of verse 17. There it is. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. The verb there, learn from, in the Greek is where we get the word telescope. It's really saying fix your attention on us. Fix your attention on mentors you can find. Zero in on that person. Watch them closely. And we need spiritual mentors, and we need to see how they live and what they do. And based on the counsel of all of Paul's letters, you can find very four very practical principles when it comes to mentors. First of all, you need a mentor at any age. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, anywhere in between, we all need mentors to follow, to look up to, to help us find the way to seek wisdom from them, and just pattern our lives, as Paul says, after them. Secondly, though, choose them carefully. (laughs) Take the necessary time to watch them over the course of time, just as that fellow did with Dave. Take some time to make sure that they're legit, that they really are real in their faith, that they live it out with what they do, what they say, what their perspective is. Choose them carefully and then invest in them. Thirdly, and this is really based on what Paul says throughout his writings, imitate the good qualities of their Christian living, but not their weaknesses. You know what? No mentor is perfect. We all have Achilles heels, don't we? Paul, even as he says, be imitators of me, he also said, I am the chief of what? Do you remember? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not perfect. So watch me and imitate me, but where I'm weak, learn from that too, but know that I'm not perfect, which really leads to the fourth principle. A spiritual mentor is always going to let you down short of Jesus himself. But that's the thing. Try to imitate them, but don't deify them. Sometimes we get into trouble when we idealize them a little too much. But we need them to help us navigate our way through, really, the enemies of this world, the darkness of this world. And Paul goes right on to say that in verse 18. He says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul doesn't identify the enemies, but he describes what they're like. Go to the next verse. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. Now, some of you will have translations say that their their God is their stomach. Really, what that's saying is they have deified their own appetites. That's what they care about is their own appetites, their own self-indulgence. That's really what they worship. That really is their primary idol. Not only that, they brag about shameful things. What they should be ashamed of, they actually brag about. And finally, they think only about this life here on earth, more specifically about themselves and what they can gain from this earth. There's no kingdom mindset about it. Now, what's interesting is Paul is applying this passage both to non-Christians and to Christians. Uh, Because I hate to say it, but we can run into Christians who really don't live with a kingdom mindset. Um, Some folks are just faking it. They might have grown up in the church, but they really have never embraced it for themselves, and it's really dangerous to, to follow closely a cheap grace believer, as Bonhoeffer would call them, you know, someone who's been around the faith but has never really embraced it. And you can tell over time as you choose your mentors carefully by how they live, maybe by their shallow understanding of basic Christian beliefs, maybe by their superficial commitment, 
maybe by their behavior, their attitude. And you don't want to be around those. You don't, those are the people you don't want to hang out with, really, to be honest. And you definitely don't envy them. The other day, I was listening to a sermon by Joel Gregory, one of the great expositors of Scripture, and he's a very conservative Baptist, but he said, you know what, I'd rather meet Jesus as a Hindu from the banks of the Ganges River who worships at funeral pyres and has never heard the gospel than to have grown up in the church and said it on my lips, but not my heart. That's a pretty strong statement, but it's very Baptist, by the way. We believe that to the degree that one has knowledge of the gospel, to that degree you will be held accountable. I will be held more accountable than that person on the Ganges River who's a Hindu. And I need to think about that, and I need to convict myself about that to say, am I being a superficial believer? What kind of mentor am I being to people around me? And am I giving myself over to mentors whose faith really is more of a cheap grace mode? And it's a sad thing, people who are spiritually sick and confused and they don't even know it. Bottom line, watch whom you follow. (laughs) Watch whom you follow. It was back in the 1980s, I'm pretty sure it was back in 1984, there was a pod of whales that came along and it was really tragic. They found 94 beached whales up in Cape Cod and, and they all died. Really sad and tragic and I remember the pictures of it. And what they discovered, these marine biologists looked at it and, and realized that it was, it was human-made sonar that messed up the lead whale. There was a lead whale in that pod, and his sense of echolocation uh, uh, got messed up. He got you know, kind of uh, uh, de-wired. His brain waves were messed up, and it caused him to lose his sense of direction, and he became confused. And that's why that one whale beached itself, but what's sad is 93 whales followed him because they assumed he was going in the right direction. Well, you see where I'm going with that. There was one whale that was sickened and disoriented. Take care whom you follow. Don't follow someone whose faith, whose theology is disoriented, who are spiritually confused. Take time to invest in those who are healthy in their walk. And Paul Paul says, follow those who live as true citizens of heaven. Let's look at verse 20. This is the key verse here. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Now, to use that word citizens of heaven, that was big for Paul. You know that he was proud to be a Roman citizen. In the Mediterranean basin, you had millions of people, 100 million people, they say. Uh, but there were only thousands who were actual Roman citizens, and Paul was one. He was proud of that, and so was the city of Philippi, to whom this letter was written, written at least to that church in Philippi, and they were proud of the fact that they were one colony primarily comprised of Greeks who were made citizens of Rome as a whole colony, and they were proud of that. And so Paul takes this idea of citizenship that they are proud of and that he's proud of, and he says, you know what, ultimately we can be proud of that, but ultimately we are citizens of heaven. We are a colony that ultimately confesses Christ as Lord. And for Paul, that really isn't a figure of speech. That is a burning reality. And it was for Peter, too. Do you remember what Peter said? We are permanent resident aliens. You're already a citizen of heaven. You're just passing through here, as the old spiritual says. Pretty soon when you die, you're just going to change addresses, but that's going to be your homeward journey, and you're going to wind up at your ultimate home. But for now, we are resident aliens. And that, that tells us, well, that's great news that we are citizens of heaven, but for now, it's not going to get any easier. You know, if we're going to live a true life 
here and truly carry our crosses, we're going to find enemies of the cross that we carry. And there lies the challenge, even to be a mentor as a church collectively, are we, Brookwood, as a church, a solid mentor to other believers, other churches out there? Paul actually addresses that. It's real interesting. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul enlarges the context of this idea of being a mentor, and he talks about churches, entire churches should be mentors to other churches. Look, he says, and then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution, you Thessalonians, in the church there at Thessalonica, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea. You, in a sense, followed the mentors in the churches in Judea. Because of their belief in Christ Jesus, they suffered from their own people, the Jews. I think that's fascinating because Paul enlarges this idea of being a mentor that we can be not only mentors individually, but how are we, Brookwood, as a mentor church? I think that's important. How well do we handle antagonism? How well do we handle oppression and persecution? Go on some mission trips and you'll find that. In fact, you know, I thought to myself the other day as I read that passage, I thought, what churches are my mentors? What churches are my mentors? And one of them has to be, um, I heard about it the other day again, the Baptist Church at Masapumalele. Maggie Hightower, you know Maggie, who's a senior in high school, She did the blog that day for the group that's in South Africa right now, and she said, we went to the most amazing church. She said, in the morning we went to King of Kings, and it was uh, mainly all, you know, white people and everything. Then we went to the church at Masapumalele, and it's a very small church, but the people are celebrating, and they worship there for four hours. And she said something, and I'm almost quoting her, she said, it was the most amazing worship experience I've ever had at little Masapumalele Church. I've been there. Some of us have been there who have gone on that trip. And there's something about being in that sad, tragic township of 28,000 people where there should be only 5,000 people living there. It's just a tragic surrounding. And yet you've got these people with the joy of the Lord just singing out their hearts. And you cannot help but be moved by that. That's one of my mentor churches. Some of you who have gone on that mission trip to Rio of... of Keith and I were talking about that, the pastor and the Christians down there who are in this drug zone, basically really a war zone, and yet you meet these Christians who have the joy of the Lord in them. Boy, that's a mentor church. True Vine, to me, is a mentor church. Think about it. They're in a part of Birmingham that's a more difficult place to live, ministering to people who are much more difficult to minister to. They are a mentor church. Ralph Garth is a mentor to me because he has the joy of the Lord in spite of what he sees on a weak to week basis. Can I, just be, can I just be even more blunt? None of those churches have a big budget. None of those churches have a big fellowship. None of those churches is a mega church. You know what? Those are my mentor churches. Because more than anything, they really reflect the love and the joy of knowing God. In fact, they really live out collectively the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, ha- uh, patience kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I get them all? Hope so. But those are my mentor churches, much more than an over-the-mountain suburban church like ours or any others. These are people who (laughs) I look up to because of the antagonism that they have to face, sometimes on a daily basis, and yet they continue to find their strength in the Lord. They continue to look toward their pastor and other leaders for mentorship, and they're all about it. They are completely sold out. 
We need churches like that to mentor you and me. And we need to remind each other and encourage one another as a church. When we're going through times of difficulty here, and when we know of a church other than ours that's going through a difficult time, we need to encourage and strengthen them. I remember when Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church was going through a difficult time in London, England, back in the 19th century, and he preached a sermon trying to encourage them, uh, just saying, you know, we're going to make it, but you know what you need to do? And he kept saying, count your blessings, count your blessings. They talked about count your blessings, name them one by one. And then he said this, and I've always loved this quote, we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. (laughs) Is that pretty good? We are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. When you hear me talk about it sometimes, I talk about coveting the good. Coveting the good about your church, what's going on in it. That's really what Spurgeon was saying collectively to his church, and that's the way we need to go about it. As citizens of heaven, yeah, we've got that eternal home to look forward to, and that's great. That's our true commonwealth. That's our true dwelling. And that can strengthen us. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, And we eagerly are waiting for him to return as Savior, as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Now, that strengthens us, and it's hard right now until we get to heaven. And and, and it's challenging, and yet, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, remember this, and Keith alluded directly to it. We have the kingdom of heaven already within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. If you don't hear me say anything else, I want you to know that. We have the kingdom of heaven as citizens of heaven now. We have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. How seriously do we take that and recognize that and take advantage of that, capitalize on it as we reach out to a world that, yes, oftentimes is going to reject us, challenge us, persecute us, yes, but we have the kingdom within us already. Do we really realize that? Paul wants us to focus on that part of heaven that we already have, and that's the presence of and the power of the Spirit. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7 for just a second, because I think this is just a fabulous passage, and, and the Thessalonians have been encountering all kinds of suffering. But basically Paul says, you know, you imitated this other church because you stayed fast with your faith and your faithfulness, and you're trusting that God is working through you. Look at what he says. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you, And has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance, because the Spirit was in you, that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the what? Holy Spirit, in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. Because you knew that the Spirit was within you and you were able to withstand and weather whatever storms you face because of what is out there in the world. And that's good news. That reminds us, remember what Paul said he said uh, based on, on 2 Corinthians five twenty. Do we have that up there? When he talks about we are ambassadors for Christ. You've heard that. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We appeal for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You talk about being a resident alien. You talk about being a citizen of heaven. I love that word that we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, Just this last Tuesday in our staff devotions, Wes Bears was talking about what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, and I thought about that. 
What does an ambassador do? An ambassador is commissioned to go to a foreign country, a foreign place, and think about it. Uh, uh, He doesn't own any land over there. He doesn't live there. He doesn't have permanent residence there. And yet he is imbued with an important authority representing this kingdom, if you will, back here. Well, you know what? We are citizens of heaven. And and, and we really, you know, we're foreigners here in this world. And when you think about it, we really don't own any land. It's all his, right? We've talked about that. And yet you and I are imbued with this unique authority because of the kingdom and the king of that kingdom who has given us the spirit within. We have that authority. What did Peter call it? We are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood priesthood because of what we have within us. But we got to be willing. Bottom line, and I close with this, we got to be willing. We've got to be able to sacrifice ourselves to become a part of that royal lineage. I don't know if y'all know about this guy named Bill Capel. I love this story. Bill Capel is a grocery store clerk in Yuba City, California. And if you saw a picture of him, you think that's the most average guy you'll ever see. But a few years ago, the kingdom in the United Kingdom did some research on who was going to be the next Earl of Essex. There have been 11 Earls of Essex who automatically have a seat in the House of Lords. And they did all this genealogical research and found out that Bill Capel, this grocery store clerk in Yuba City, California, is slated to be the next Earl of Essex, the 12th Earl of Essex, which I just love. He already has an honorary seat in the House of Lords, though he never shows up. But that's him. And, and I think about, you know, how often do we as Christians realize that, you know, we're not aware that you and I already are a part of this royal priesthood, that we have spiritual royalty. We're children of the supreme king. But it's interesting as you read his story, <laughs> you read about Bill Capel's situation because if he wants to get that title eventually when the 11th Earl dies, he has to do one other thing. He needs to renounce his U.S. residency. He needs to give it up and become an Englishman. And he was reluctant to do that at first, <laughs> but then they showed him, these are the rewards that just might outweigh that sacrifice. And he said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so he's going to give up his U.S. citizenship eventually. And I think, you know what, you and I need to do the same thing. You know, we have something we've got to give up. We've got to surrender our earthly citizenship in a way that we really live as disciples of Jesus and carry our crosses and really give up those things that might make us poor mentors to one another. we got to give those things up. But do you, do you agree with me that just maybe, just maybe the rewards outweigh the sacrifice? And they do. And that should be enough reason right there for you and for me to give ourselves over and follow the mentors who show us the narrow, difficult way of the cross and know that others are watching as well. Yes, we are in a dark world. I get tired of getting on Google News or whatever. And yet I remember that as a citizen of heaven, yeah, I'm going to head there. But for now, I and you and I have work to do. And yet, and yet, heaven is already within us. Are we going to tap into the power of the Spirit and trust that the Spirit's going to lead us and help us to be the fearless disciples that we are called to be. Have you really done that yet? As Keith said, 
hopefully you've already died to this world. Have you done that? Have you really done that? Let's pray together. Lord, we can lament all we want about the status of this world, but based on the revelation of your Holy Scripture, we know that this is a broken place full of darkness and evil and corruption and pain. And yet remind us that we are your citizens, that we are really a part of your commonwealth. But may we not look at all that in an escapist fashion. Because of that, help us to engage this world. Help us to trust that you are already living in us, that, that, that we are the Holy Spirit's address. And because of that, we have work to do that we can do. Even when we don't think we're making much of a difference, help us to trust that we are. And help us to know that people are watching us. And out of that, oh God, may they see that we are citizens of a commonwealth that it is worth their joining. We pray these things in your name. Amen.